folks, thank you for tuning into this episode. Before we begin, I just want to make a little announcement, a little bit of an update here on a project that I've been working on for the better part of a year now with Gods and Radicals Press. I will be releasing a book, We Live in the Orbit of Beings Greater Than Us, on the 25th of this month of May. Pre-sale is happening right now. You can go to a beautifulresistance.org. You look at the very top of the page and go to the Books tab and you'll see it there. You can also find it if you go to the very top of the Last Born in the Wilderness website page. You'll see a link to that there as well. This book is a collection of interviews that I conducted between episodes 100 and 200 of the podcast, weaved together with commentary. This book features interviews with scientists, feminists, theorists, psychologists, journalists, environmentalists, and other important thinkers, people that I found to be doing really important and necessary work in this time. I'm very proud of how this thing is turning out, and I'm very excited to get it out to you. And I just really want to thank everybody that has already purchased a copy of this book. And I, again, I just look so forward to sharing this work. Thank you to everybody that agreed to be in this book. There are almost 30 people, close to 30 interviews that are going to be featured in this text. So again, thank you to all of them and to the listeners and the supporters of this project. It means a great deal to me that everybody has been as supportive as they have been with this work up to this point. So thank you all. And here's the episode. In this episode, I speak with Professor Darsha Narvaez. Darsha is a professor of psychology at the University of Notre Dame with a focus on moral development and flourishing from an interdisciplinary perspective. She integrates neurobiological, clinical, developmental, and education sciences, and she is interested in how early life experience and societal culture interact to influence well-being and virtuous character in children and adults. She is the author of numerous books, including Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality, Evolution, Culture, and Wisdom, and the co-editor of Indigenous Sustainable Wisdom, First Nation Know-How for Global Flourishing. And she writes a regular column for psychologytoday.com. The title of that is Moral Landscapes, in which she explores these ideas more thoroughly. I, I spoke with Darsha. We mentioned this in the interview. The last time I spoke with Darsha was about three years ago back when I was just beginning to do interviews for this podcast. So she was one of the uh, early interviewees that I had on this thing. And, uh, you know, a lot has changed in those three years, not only with me and with this podcast, but just in the world. And lately, I've been thinking a lot about all the reactions to the economic shutdown regarding this global pandemic and particularly in the United States, you know, we're seeing armed militias go into Capitol buildings around different states in the United States, demanding that we reopen the economy. Uh, we have a whole bunch of people that are attaching themselves to very strange and outlandish conspiracy theories about where this virus is coming from, what it's here for, you know, what the agenda is behind it. You know, we're, we're seeing just kind of a, a fracturing and a, a fragmenting of our culture, of our society. Now, I'm not necessarily in favor of of maintaining the culture of the United States in particular, but I do see that people are living in completely different ideological frameworks. And this is, I guess, to a great degree, always been the case. But we're really seeing a real fracturing right now. And the deal with this pandemic is that if there's ever been a time that people need to really have a consensus about what needs to be done 
to stem the spread of this virus. It's right now. And I wanted to know what the roots are of that. You know, uh, the last interview I did that I released on this podcast was with psychotherapist and writer Anthony Rella. We get into some of this, but I wanted to explore another angle of this with Darsha because of her work in childhood development. Because I think that a lot of our reactions and how we deal with crisis, both on an individual and on a collective level, comes from our childhood experiences. It comes from the conditions that we were raised in. And unfortunately, we have a baseline of child-rearing practices in our culture at large today that is certainly not optimal for the development of human beings into fully realized, socially responsible, pro-social, emotionally intelligent people. We don't have that in our culture at large. We have little pockets of it, I'm sure. We have small communities that actually actively work to create a a healthy baseline for child-rearing, where we have communities that can help raise children collectively Most of our existence as a species has been as hunter-gatherers. We've existed in very tightly knit bands of hunter-gatherer nomadic groups of people for the majority of our existence on this planet. And only in the last several thousand years, we've had what we can define as civilization. And out of those patterns of civilization, certain child-rearing practices have emerged. And particularly within the context of the dominant culture of, say, the United States, We have child-rearing practices that are really detrimental to the emotional, physical, spiritual development of children into adults. So what we have is a shifting baseline where what we think of as normal is actually really not good. (laughs) What we think of as normal child-rearing practices in the United States specifically, I'm going to speak as an American because Darsha and I are both in the U.S., is not healthy. It is not healthy for the development of children into emotionally intelligent human beings. So much of what we're experiencing right now is rooted in trauma, intergenerational trauma. And that, unfortunately, what happens is that when somebody is traumatized, it doesn't always have to be this way, but often those traumas can be reinforced into future generations. So when we see people reacting to states of crisis, we can understand that it's tied to a trauma. It's tied to our childhoods. And we can, as adults, if we become aware of this, we can work to, uh, I guess you could say, correct some of those behaviors and not inflict that on future generations. We can make the choice to develop the contexts, the environments for children to be raised within that are actually going to promote really healthy cognitive development. It's all very important that we do that, especially right now. So yeah, I'm really happy to reconnect with Darsha to have her go over these concepts again and fit it within the context of what we're experiencing right now. If you want to learn more about her work, go to her website, darshanarvice.com. Go to that website. You can learn more about her work there. I'll put a link to her uh, moral landscapes column at psychologytoday.com. And I'll also provide a link to her other website, evolvednest.org. Please go check those websites out. They're really excellent resources and a good place to start if you want to learn more about her work in the Evolve Nest. And if you would like to learn more about this podcast in particular, you can do so at the website lastborninthewilderness.com. Everything you need to know will be on that website. 
And if you would like to support this podcast, you can do so through one-time donations through PayPal. You go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast, make a one-time donation through that. Or you can support this podcast monthly through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. And if you go there and contribute to this podcast, that way you'll get early access to these interviews before the official public release. But without any further delay, here is my interview with Darsha Narvaez. Well, Darsha, it's really great to reconnect with you. Uh, As I said before we started, um, last time we spoke was about almost three years ago. Um, And I have to say, you were one of the early interviews that I did for this podcast. And so, uh, you know, a lot's changed in three years' time, at least with me in this work. But I knew at some point I was going to circle back around and, and talk with you. And, uh, you know, I really admire your work. I really admire what you've put together. And, uh, and again, as I was saying before we started, I was kind of expressing what I wanted to discuss with you. And, you know, so much of your work is really great at laying uh, a certain base or a certain base of understanding and knowledge about not only how not only the proper child rearing practices that that help human beings or, or children develop into fully realized empathetic social uh, human beings um, it not only does that, but you, you do a really good job at expressing, you know, why it is that so many of us feel so um, unable to have healthy relationships or or why, basically just why we are the way we are. You know, a lot of us feel something is missing or something was not given to us from a very early age. And something I've been thinking a great deal about is Right now, our society, and I'm speaking as someone here in the United States, I know you're in the United States as well, uh, it feels like our society is fracturing more and more um, along ideological lines, and especially with this um, pandemic, seeing people's responses to that has been so wide and varied, um, all the way from people being very conscious of what's happening, taking the risks very seriously, doing what's been asked of them, whether it's been mandated like from the top down or not, people just take it upon themselves to take care of themselves and other people. And we're also seeing the other end of the spectrum, which are people think that this isn't even a real crisis. This is a made up, uh, it's a hoax or there's all these crazy theories and ideas that are getting spread around. And so much of what I see is really based in trauma or something related to that. That's more and more what I'm leaning towards. And so my my attraction to to your work, especially lately, has been trying to uncover that, uh, try to find answers as to why why this is happening. And so, I guess my my first question for you is, you know, what have, what are your general thoughts about what's happening in, say, U.S. society in particular with the fracturing that I mentioned? Uh, Patrick, it's so good to talk with you again, and thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Thank <laughs> I you. Can't believe it's been so long. Mm-mm. <laughs> Time flies. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So I, I uh, worry about humanity all the time and what's going wrong and how to repair and, and uh, what the possibilities are. And so I think about these things um, with great interest and sleepless nights. So you're asking yeah. me the questions that I uh, passionately um, consider. So 
I guess the place to start perhaps is I to say I agree with you. I think there's trauma that we have now incorporated as a routine, uh, routine part of early childhood experience. And mm-hmm. we know from neuroscience and converging evidence now that early stress uh, is toxic for a developing brain. And there's all sorts of psychopathologies that can result depending on the timing, intensity, duration, uh, and the particular child's um, ingredients, genetics, and uh, epigenetic inheritance and things. So I think you're right to point to trauma as the source for a lot of the disruption that our society is feeling now. Uh, but it's also part of the, the American story. History of the United States is filled with trauma and uh, people causing trauma to others, you know, with the racism that's built in the white supremacy. And so uh, in the, the disregard of, of um, well, uh, Ian Sati, uh, psychotherapist back in the 30s, that said there was a taboo on tenderness. And I think that's what you see everywhere, the way we treat prisoners and uh, just people in the neighborhood or, you know, people are different, right? There's just this cruelty streak. But I think it, and probably it's not only the individual's experience in their own lives, but the epigenetic inheritance. You can inherit anxiety from your parents' experience, for example. Uh, So I think there's a lot of that that's intertwined. And then a reluctance to face the pain. So when you, when you are, uh, emotionally rejected as a baby and we do that routinely by leaving babies alone in their own room crib or playpen or carrier and we don't carry and touch them as they expect 24 7 to be physically with a caregiver and then we do cried out sleep training that's just oh, horrible for a brain developing uh and so when babies are mistreated that way i would say i call it undercare they uh, have primal wounds. Uh, it breaks the continuum of, of uh, the sense of being part of life. And the Jean Leadloff talked about this in her book, which is a great read for regular people, the continuum concept, but uh, and contrasted United States child raising with uh, the uh, Amazonian group she lived with several times, Yaquana. Uh, and so a child is, we all harbor then these primal wounds. And if you don't heal them, and the, the way you heal them is you have to face that pain of that disruption of being rejected. And therapy usually does this. Uh, nature, immersion can do it, other methods of, of healing. And if you don't face the pain, you're, you're going to um, express it towards others. And so you take up a us against them because the... Uh, what the psychotherapists uh, found in their traumatized patients over the last hundred years or so, all these different therapists, is there's a, a break, a split that occurs then when the baby doesn't get good enough caregiving. Uh, they, they split things in their mind. They split against themselves. They have to keep the mother or the caregiver in um, uh, as uh, feeling that they're good. Otherwise, their whole world collapses and they go crazy. And so they split and make themselves bad. And then later over time, they split um, themselves. They can't really face themselves. But then there's this good and bad, black and white thinking 
and they project all the bad stuff onto whichever group is sanctioned by their culture. So for white Americans, in some cases, it's black Americans, for example. So right. that's what I think is pervasive now uh, in some people who have not <clears throat> had the nurturing enough early experience to develop a properly functioning brain, which I can say more about. And uh, so when they're adults, they're um, <clears throat> attracted to ideologies of black and white thinking where they mm -hmm. feel superior they feel safe because they know they have a place that's better than some other group, some other, and they're going to be okay. And they have to, they latch onto that and they can't let it go. And if you threaten that identity, oh my God, they get so violent because that feels like they're, they're going to drop through space forever, you know, the forever death feeling. So they haven't faced it well. And therapists talk about this, that you have to help the client realize that when they face the pain, they're not going to, dissolve into nothingness but yeah. actually it, it's it's hard to face the pain but afterwards you're more alive you're no, more real you're more yourself right anyway so yeah well yeah. i i think with uh you know i've just started doing some therapy very recently and um, i mean i'm excited and also a little afraid honestly because it's it does it is exactly what you say you know once you get to the root of that pain or that trauma um you don't really know what's on the other side of that. And for some reason, we fear, or I fear, and I think others do as well, um, what is on the other side of that trauma? Because I think it, it I, I guess you, you mentioned something here about the ideology, uh, ideology and black and white thinking. And something that came up in that when you said that was I was thinking is like, in, the, in a liberal democracy that we supposedly have, um, there's this 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 notion that everybody is entitled to their opinions as long as it doesn't hurt other people or or anything like that. But even that is you know th there's certainly a um, space that's given to ideologies that actually do encourage the harming of people, even if people don't really want to come to terms with that. But I'm curious about that because I think we have this idea in our society that people can have their opinions on the right or on the left. They can have whatever ideological position they want. Uh, but I, I feel like the ideologies that we attach ourselves to speak to something far deeper than just this notion of the freedom of ideas. Uh, some ideologies are, in, are truly toxic and based in a certain way of thinking or being that um, is uh, harmful. And I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on why certain people attach themselves to certain ideologies and how that justifies their their pain or their trauma. Yeah, so I talk about the brain's development. And in early life, if you are overly stressed, you tend to then enhance your survival systems, your, your systems that keep you alive, which include the stress response and also the emotion systems of fear and anger and uh, panic and when you're, um, instead of growing, what you're supposed to be growing is all these social capacities and attunement and engagement with others. That's what's supposed to grow all sorts of nonverbal uh, understanding and skills in before language starts. You're supposed to be developing that. But if you've been stressed as a baby, as I've mentioned, uh, you're not going to grow those. You're going to enhance these survival systems and then you're not going to grow the uh, capacities, the executive functions that control them, which in a good childhood you are able to realize, you know, that 
maybe there's a shadow that comes across the room and your your uh, subconscious thinks it's a monster coming after you and then you you look at it and you realize oh no it's just a shadow well with a good well-functioning brain you're able to then calm yourself down calm yourself down right away and uh you know it's not a big deal but for a poorly functioning brain, it, this panic reverberates and reverberates and you can't get yourself back calmed down. And then everything, you start to be threat reactive with a, a poorly functioning um, brain and you see threats everywhere. And so you're always in this state of panic. And so you look for something to calm yourself down. And it's out there because you don't have it inside because it wasn't developed well. And so you, uh, you latch on to something and, and, um, or your parents tell you to do this or they spank you into not paying attention to your own emotions and your own spirit, your own interests. And you then start to real, think that your, um, how to be a person is to be better than that group. And you just develop, it's like uh, when I was a kid, the male ego was a big thing people would talk about, you know, and there'd be guys you'd meet. And then you meet that you, know, you had to be careful how you talk to them because they had this chip on their shoulder that they're better than women, you know, and, and so you, <laughs> you knew that. And uh, that's a sign of fragility that that person is not flexible, not attuned. They treat you like a, you're a stereotype um, because that's their brain isn't fully developed. So it's a lot of right hemisphere stuff that's supposed to develop in early life that doesn't develop. And that that's what gives you the flexibility to be tuned into others. And so you end up then instead with a kind of a scripted, stereotypic kind of life. Uh, you use scripts when you go into a situation. Those people are, uh, this is my group, that's your group. You're evil, bad, whatever, or you stay in your place and then we'll all be fine, you know, whatever it is. And if things go awry from your script, you get all upset and then you have to do something you're usually, uh, for men, it's externalizing, they call it in psychology, which is aggression. You aggress towards the other, uh, like the recent um, killing of the black man was jogging yes. down the street. He was somehow, um, uh, you know, not staying in his place as a black man for the two white fellows who killed him. Uh, and that's what would happen with women and men in my growing up years, uh, you didn't see it so much uh, anyway, but that's what happens, right? You Someone's violating your script and you blame them for it instead of realizing you have a very narrow script and you're very stress reactive and there's some healing that has to be done, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, that speaks to uh, the shifting baselines, as you've discussed, where, well, I'll, actually, I would just ask that you could please explain that concept a bit. Because uh, it applies sure. to to multiple fields of research and sciences and whatnot, but I guess maybe uh, discuss the general concept and how it applies to what you're discussing. Yeah, so baseline is uh, some form of what you think is normal, uh, and you can make comparisons to what you think is normal. And uh, my complaints in psychology is they use baselines of what they think is normal psychology or normal human behavior or human nature from this narrow slice of people in the Western world, most of whom are unnested. So they, their brains are not fully developed as a human being. And yet they, they just assume the people coming into the lab are the ones that are their normal. And then, oh, look, they scored this way. And so humans are always this way. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's happened. 
<laughs> what's happened is uh, there's just been this over time uh, a, a shift in baselines about what is normal a uh, normal way to raise a child. Uh, and so, like I said before, leaving them alone in their own room, in their own crib, a baby, uh, letting them cry themselves to sleep, giving them formula, fake food, uh, and um, telling them you love them while you leave them alone gets them all confused because the world is alive and you've broken the continuum of feeling safe in the world. And now they have to somehow regroup so they develop some kind of psychopathology to survive. <clears throat> so that's the baseline then the shift away from nurturing child raising. And we have 99% of our history was in foraging nomadic bands who provide the nest, what I call the evolved nest, breastfeeding and uh, touch 24 seven, carrying all the time with a baby and uh, play and multiple adult caregivers. So it's not just mom or mom and dad. And just this whole uh, sense of community, constant communal connection and it builds a great brain a very intelligent social emotional intelligent uh, uh, way of uh, being with others and so uh, the baseline shifted away from that to this kind of un what I call undercare it's really neglect but that's a legal term so I say undercare and then that, that yields uh, kids that are kind of dysregulated and self-centered and aggressive aggressive you know and we start we think that's normal of course, then we give them pills so they just sit there, sit there dully and listen. Sit in school, you know, the one of the at least the old definition of ADHD, uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, in the manual uh, for psychiatrists and psychologists said uh, one of the definitions was will not sit still for boring tasks. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> what is that for? That's the adult. <laughs> forgotten what it means to be a child to be a child is to play all the time social play that's how you build your brain and the kids know that so we force them to sit still so that's another uh, slipped baseline so we think they're supposed to be aggressive and all and you have to punish them into being good well that's not the way it works in our ancestral context that's crazy and then you end up with adults who are depressed and anxious and lonely and unskilled and rigid and stiff-minded and stress-reactive. And we think that's normal now. Oh, human nature is selfish and aggressive. That's just the way. Yeah, but that's because we've been misraising people for generations now. That's not normal for our species. We haven't given them the species-typical nest. And then you end up, adults, build a culture that perpetuates the cycle, whatever it is, right? So uh, in the animal studies, the parents who are poor uh, nurturers, usually it's the mothers uh, that are studied, and their daughters are worse. And so we end up with this getting, the cycle going down right now. And part of, part of the reason for uh, our uh, forgetfulness is that we've, we're a nation of immigrants, the United States, and they People came over without their extended families who knew how to raise babies. And there you are as a young couple and you don't know what to do. You both have to work. And so you start feeding your baby oatmeal and stuff and you kill it. <coughs> and this is the start of the American Academy of Pediatrics was all these mothers were killing their babies by feeding them non-breast milk because they had to go to work. So they started for, uh, formulas and things. Okay. Wow. Uh, so... I guess that that 
is kind of the root of it then is as you discussed with the fact that most americans are are um, disconnected from their heritage in some form or there is maybe a you know where we see this as a as a, a thing to be proud of which is that we're a nation of immigrants um that this nation was built with people from all over the world that came to this land as a sort of a promise, right? Uh, a place that people could come and there'd be freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and all these different things granted to people. Of course, we know that that's really unequally distributed even to the present. Um, but to me, it's like, it, it, I've been thinking a lot about, and something I've explored on the podcast as well is, you know, I think that that people think that people came here because they, they just had this sort of deep idealism, this sense that, you know, we're going to live in a land that's freer and better. Um, I, I think that there's a big part of that that's ignored, which is what I'm speaking as somebody who's a um, descendant of uh, Europeans. And I, I have this strong feeling that in my, my ancestors and the ancestors of so many people that live on this land, we're escaping some very difficult and traumatic circumstances in Europe. And they carried those with them and re and like you talk about shifting baselines, it's like they reinforced some of those traumas on the peoples that lived here and displaced them and murdered them. And that that is actually a part of the way that they were dealing with their trauma. So I'm curious about your thoughts on that, about how, you know, this intergenerational trauma, the shifting baseline has been in effect for, a very long time and that we're still sort of playing out those traumas to the present. Yeah. One of the reasons uh, a lot of Europeans came over here it coincided with the takeover of the common lands in Europe uh, <clears throat> happened over a few hundred years, starting in England, primarily where the aristocracy, the wealthy would just, just take over the forest where everybody had been getting their uh, hunting and gathering and things. And they just took them over and, they did that over here, too. Uh, in Appalachia, people would... a uh, uh, strange notion of property, which is not very old, just a few hundred years old. Um, people would buy some land, like in Appalachia, and they, they wouldn't go there. They just have the hold the property title. And so people would um, <clears throat> squat. I guess squatters would be there, and they'd just live there in their own uh, homes and use the forest for... Uh, food um, and then the property owners came in there's a good book called um, called ramp hollow about this where the property owners came in and wanted the people to work in their factory or their industry whatever it was and so they cut down the forest completely and so people didn't have anywhere to get food anymore and so they had to go wage be wage laborers you know and that's just what's mm. happened over the last few hundred years with capitalism and um, the imposition of working for others on people. Um, but I think it goes back to civilization <coughs> around 10,000 years ago, depending on where you're looking and um, where people got afraid that it, before that time, everyone would rely on nature to provide food and, and uh, water and everything you needed. And something happened. Um, people can't, Aren't, aren't sure what happened exactly. Was it that there's too many people and they had to start to cultivate plants uh, or um, domesticate animals? Or It's unclear exactly, but the shift happened around the world, not uh, with 
in small communities. Most people still were hunter-gatherers for a long time still. Now there are a lot of groups. Um, but there is something about uh, enslaving, to put it har harshly, enslaving plants and animals. So they enslave <laughs> the weeds that would grow in disturbed soil. So that's wheat, barley, corn, right? Those um, kinds of grains will grow in a disturbed soil. Most plants won't. Uh, and then the animals, um, they domesticated. Not all animals can be domesticated, just a few. And that Middle Eastern, the <laughs> um, Tigris-Euphrates area, right, the Crescent, uh, was the place that these things, supposedly in part, at least that's one story, they came from that. And so the, they also then adopted the ideologies of uh, things that were uh, the thunder god, right, the um, sky god, uh, being apart from the world, whereas before that, God, everything was sacred, everything uh, was part of, you know, being the continuum of life, and so there's a lot of different pieces that, that fall in, uh, that contribute to this current uh, crisis we're in, not only the pandemic, but ecologically, we're about ready to go over the cliff, all sorts of tipping points are about to take place and um, the climate of the globe will get out of whack extremely so um, but that that's all all those little pieces are uh, contributing factors okay yeah I feel like there there's definitely a lot of uh, pieces to this and so to just sort of narrow it down to one thing of course is not necessarily giving it justice but I do think that it's it's interesting because I, I remember um, it was maybe a year or so ago. He was a former co coworker of mine, and he and his uh, partner just had a child. And he was on social media, and he was, um, in a sense, he was bragging uh, about how he raises his child, which is, you know, when when his child is uh, misbehaving or as as they perceive it as misbehaving, uh, they they spank their child, right? I and this is a baby. Yeah, this was a. I, I think that they may have been a toddler at this point, but it wouldn't be that hard to imagine they did something similar to that even younger. Um, and of course, it, it really irritated me. It really bothered me a great deal. So I responded to it, and it was amazing. I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I had a whole other group of people start responding to me and saying that I was the ridiculous one for saying that spanking is actually hitting and it's abusive and it it messes up the development of the child and. Because they themselves will defend their own uh, childhood experiences of being disciplined in that way, as they call it, being disciplined. Um, and I find that really, it, it's disheartening in a certain way, because I think people identify with their trauma. Um, yeah. And when I think about, for instance, the genocide of indigenous peoples, the enslavement of African populations that, that built this country, essentially, and I think about all the violence that had to be enacted in order to build this American project, and I think about all the individual, smaller scale level, you know, when we think about the individual, and how everybody is, they create narratives and stories and ideologies and, and mythologies in order to almost give... Um, a positive spin on their trauma that they either inflicted on others or that they themselves experienced. And, and mm. I know that I went from like the macro to the micro there, but basically 
I see it in both of those ways all the time. I'm always thinking about what's happening on a larger scale and how that's reflective of what's happening on the individual scale as well. So with this this coworker of mine defending uh, his child-rearing practices, his major defense was, and the defense of so many other people was, well, I was hit as a, or I was spanked as a child. And, <laughs> and I'm fine. And I'm fine, right? <laughs> And that to me is like, you're not fine. <laughs> I promise you, if you weren't fine, you probably wouldn't be defending that. You would be addressing it in a healthy way. Um, but I couldn't get through to them. I really couldn't. There was nothing I could say or do. I could pre- present them with as, as much scientific information, as many of the research that you've done. I even shared, I tried to share some some stuff that we spoke about on the podcast the last time we spoke. Um because I think your work is very approachable. It's not too technical. You explain everything very well. Uh, but it was, again, I guess I'm just pointing to the disheartening nature of human beings and the way we develop where we actually uphold our trauma as a sort of achievement or a virtue or something to be proud of. And that disturbs me. And it makes me feel a bit pessimistic, honestly, about the, the direction that we're going in collectively right now. And I was curious what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, I've had the same experiences. Yeah, people say, oh, well, that's silly. Be nice to your baby? What? Mm. They're going to control you. You can spoil the baby, which is craziness. That's, in a way, they're advocating, uh, when they say that, uh, parent independence. The baby Mm. is supposed to be dependent on you for learning how to self-regulate all the systems of physiological and psychological systems and if you force them to be alone, they're going to then not be very regulated. But, yeah, you get to have your life back. Parents have been told, so they write to me and they say, well, they told me I should sleep train so I can get my life back. Because <laughs> <laughs> all these other people, for some reason, think that, you know, having a baby is a pain in the neck rather than the joy of your life, you know. So there's this, uh, the caregiving uh, attachment. There's a... Uh, two kinds of attachment one is the child's attachment they can develop uh and it's a neurobiological thing but the people measure it uh, more like uh, situations and attachment can be secure or all sorts of different kinds of insecure but there's also the caregiver attachment system and a lot of that's broken i think we break it when we uh impose medicalized birth on moms on babies Uh, A lot of them are unnecessary. Uh, Some are necessary, but... uh, And so when you interfere with that post-birth, when you interfere with all the chemicals that are happening in a natural birth, like inducing labor, that interferes, that's oxytocin, interferes with the normal development of oxytocin in mom and baby. And then if you uh, keep them separate in that magic hour, the golden hour after birth, then you, you're missing that their bodies are ready to glom onto each other, magnetized, you know, it's so amazing mm. that you've just messed that up. Well, then they, you know, they never quite get coordinated again in many cases. And so uh, a lot of that's happening. And I think what then people have to do is they have to adopt this toughness, grit, you know, <laughs> attitude toward life and their kids and you know i gonna make you strong by spanking you it's for your own good <laughs> <laughs> crazy stuff right but you have to develop a story to explain yourself why are you always so reactive and why do you hate that or this or that and you make up a story and people tell you the story to adopt and so 
that's I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian home, and that's the stories. Those people aren't going to be in heaven. We are, though, you know, and you worms, you. God has been nice to you, and so you're going to get to heaven, but you have to be good and all, all these crazy things. Uh, because people don't have it inside. So when you raise a child to have their spirit grow without coercion, spanking is terrible because it misaligns then development towards self-protection. I call it self-protectionism. You get an attitude of, you know, the world's not safe, so I have to, you know, be tough or withdraw, you know, one of those. And so you develop these strange ways of behaving in order to protect yourself because what else are you going to do? No, your parents weren't there to protect you while you were developing your core self. And so you kind of get off the rail and you end up with all sorts of strange ideas and you're susceptible in a way you're, <clears throat> you're, have, um, uh, you're susceptible to illness of the mind, <clears throat> right, of ideologies. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if I answered your question. I kind of got off the tangent. No, no, that's good. I mean, I guess my question was really just – I guess maybe it points to this other question, which is, so uh, definitely not the majority of people, but for those that start to identify the root of their own individual pain and where their dysfunctions are maybe coming from, they may have some indication that something isn't right and something is deep, something went wrong and they don't know where it's at necessarily, but as they start to discover and figure it out for themselves they may begin to realize like, oh, I, would, I really wasn't given the proper um, conditions of development to develop into a fully realized human being. And then I think people then begin to wonder, well, what does a fully realized human being look like, mm -hmm. act like? What are they really, what would that really look like? And I think what makes it so difficult is we really don't see many or any of those kinds of human beings in our culture. Um, even, mm -hmm. the, even the best and most wise people have maybe not even gotten to that point in themselves. Um, so in your work and in your research, what, what are the, what are some examples of an ideal environment for the development of a child's uh, body and mind? And what does that look like in a cultural, uh, on a cultural level? Uh, you mean in the uh, modern world? <laughs> uh, well, maybe maybe in the modern world, but maybe we could look back into the past. Uh, I know you mentioned hunter-gatherer tribes, and and I and I, I think what's difficult now is that there's so few of them, and right. some of these societies are are very purposely isolating themselves from the rest of the world in order to protect themselves from what they see as a really destructive culture and civilization. Uh, so it's hard to study them, right? And maybe that's good. We should just leave them alone. Um, but I'm, yes, yeah, but, but I'm just curious of what your what the research shows uh, in regards to what a, a healthy um, environment would be for a child to develop in. Okay, so maybe what I'll do is I will talk about our ancestral context because I use that as a baseline for okay. developing a normal, fully functioning human being, uh, and then talk about what to do now. To try to, yeah, um, that sounds great. Okay, so uh, soothing birth. I mentioned I mentioned that soothing perinatal experience. So having moms calm and uh, welcoming the child that's in their womb, uh, in the the mbuti would make up a song for that child and sing it to the child before birth and then after birth. Uh, is Colin Turnbull's work, anthropologist. 
Uh, and after birth, they, the mother would sing that child, uh, sing the song to that child, and then maybe the community would sing it also. And that would also always calm and welcome that child. They always felt like they belonged. Um, <clears throat> other, uh, so that uh, at birth, then you have a welcoming uh, rather than any no harsh um, treatment of the baby at birth. The, ma uh, the baby will uh, instinctively crawl up the mother's belly and massage the nipple to start the milk, uh, which is very bonding for the mother as well as the child. And then that milk, um, the breast milk is magical. It's, it uh, provides what that baby needs at that time because the saliva of the child indicates to the breast what that baby needs. So if there's an infectious agent around, the breast will pre, uh, prepare an antibody, for example. The in a growth spurt, they'll provide more fat, fatty milk, and so on. <clears throat> and it's different for boys and girls. So <laughs> really magical stuff. Thousands of ingredients. Uh, builds the immune system. Builds the, the uh, uh, neurotransmitter systems and everything. So uh, breast milk on request then would be another thing in our ancestral context. That would be um, the mother, the, and this combines with being carried around all the time, often skin to skin on the mother's uh, chest, but also other people. Uh, half the time it's other adults usually, or even, you know, dozens of people carrying that baby uh, around during the day. And then when the baby's ready for milk or suckling, then they babies provided by the mother or even another mother <coughs> so there's this whole um feeling of being nested of being uh, welcomed and part of the group and the babies you know, with the adults wherever they're whatever they're doing the baby's there the young children are there it's all you know whatever the needs to be done for the community and in those uh societies it means um gathering <clears throat> there are and these are bands nomadic forging bands are fiercely egalitarian so nobody bosses anyone around there's no coercion so no punishment um <clears throat> and if baby the toddler starts to walk into something that looks kind of dangerous the baby is attentive the child is attentive to the muscle tone of the adults or the others around and pays attention to that. So there's never any, no, don't do that. The, uh, the child is aware of the body's getting tense based on what the child is about to do. So that will, that's enough of an indicator that's fascinating. to the child. That. Yeah. So there's a lot of nonverbal communication that occurs. And you can, this is uh, propelled, of course, by having lots of skin-to-skin -skin contact and pretty much constant presence in in each other's lives and um, another thing would be um, uh, multiple like I said multiple adult caregivers who are responsive to the needs of the child so you never let the baby cry uh, and they wouldn't if they're on your body anyway <clears throat> and you rock them and you're always moving around and uh, which helps digestion that's why rocking is good moving um, and then there's play. Children, even toddlers, are, are welcome into play with older kids, and they adjust their play so that the baby or the young kid can also participate. And in the uh, E. Richard Sorensen describes his living with um, some of these, um, I think, hunter-gatherer groups, not always bands, but they had similar parenting practices around the world <clears throat> that um, – 
the uh, what was I going to say? Sorry, uh, <laughs> I was thinking about him. Uh, how uh, the child is uh, welcome, as I said, into the play, and they are able to also be in the lap of their parent, who's maybe using a machete, and put their fingers in the way, or even take up the machete and move it around, and stuff like that. And there's no the adults don't coerce anyone; they don't say no. And the child, they anthropologists all over the place report on toddlers using machetes and they're going oh my god no they're fine they learn how to use the tool and so they are their own person they respect the autonomy of that child so there's high belong sense of belonging high autonomy everybody gets to do what they want they can wander off to the next village if they want to do that so um anybody <clears throat> And uh, so it's a it's a much freer, open, nourishing kind of environment than we provide our kids. Um, so I, um, if we think now, what can be done uh, in the modern world about this? Well, you want to have your child children be able to play outside freely, and that's unfortunately a lot of laws against it now. Parents are getting arrested or fined for their children playing in the park across the street. <laughs> from their house or whatever it's craziness uh so uh but that's part partially i think from the anxiety that the adults have from their own childhood experiences and their their own parents experiences of feeling so anxious all the time right <gasps> something might go wrong and the media telling you you know all this giving you misinformation about how widespread kidnapping every corner and you know so Parents, uh, so that all has to shift away back to, you know, realism and awareness of what children need to grow well, which is lots of play throughout childhood. So that means forest kindergartens, for example. And those are uh, uh, around the world now, uh, more in Europe and in Canada than here, I think. Uh, but they're, the kids are wandering around and playing most of the time. They learn um what they're interested in. Uh, and in this one video I sent my students this semester from Denmark, I think the, there was a child that climbed way up high in a tree and was swaying back and forth. And I asked the teacher, well, aren't you worried that children might get hurt? And he said, oh, well, I've been doing this for 17 years. And, you know, the only time we had to take a child into the doctor was when a parent drove over the foot of one of the children. Oh, my God. <laughs> So, <laughs> very different attitude about how to raise a child, you know, and how important it is to feel connected. And so you you avoid, you want to avoid anything that makes that child feel disconnected. And that would be leaving them alone to sleep, which is considered cruel by most societies, uh, or spanking them, uh, somehow harshly treating them. Um, and then you integrate them into adult work now it's unfortunate that we spend most of our time in front of computers that's not a thing that children can learn uh, as a toddler right so um except you know things that aren't relevant to the parents work so more more home making like cooking and gardening and things like that would be good the child learns then is ready to help and ready to dig in and there was a study, uh, maybe informal, of how in in uh, Mexico, in the Mayan families, the children are helping all the, all over, the, all the ages, no problem with chores, right? Whereas we always complain, parents complain about, oh, the teenager doesn't want to do their chores. 
Well, it seems that there's a sensitive period for learning to want to do them, and that's in those early first years. So you want your two-year-old to help, even though it's going to make a bigger mess folding the laundry to let them help at that time. Mm -hmm. It makes more work for maybe for the adults, but it seems to be a sensitive period for commitment to the good of the family or community to let them do that then, and then they slowly build their skills. So the kinds of um, help that we need now is we need, in the U.S., we don't have parental leave, for example. We need at least a year, probably three years, so that parents can bond. Some moms say they won't, don't want to breastfeed their baby because they have to go back to work in a few weeks, and they don't want to feel the pain of separation then. And so, oh, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Or they sleep train them so they can go to work in the morning, right? And it's like, ah, it's perpetuating all sorts of problems. So I don't know. I've been wandering around and talking. Here, so. <laughs> no, you're fine. I, I think something that came up, though, that I wanted to follow uh, the thread yeah. The thread was you mentioned um, when children are kind of wandering around and playing and because they're so attuned to you said the muscle tone, I think you said, of the adults. So the way that they're physically, like, they can actually sense that their parents are like, oh, I'm tense because you're getting too close to the river or you're too close to this dangerous thing. Yeah. You're doing something that really mm -hmm. is, is stressing me out. And the child is able to sense that and feel that and be like, okay, well, that's not good. So I'll step away. Um, that to me speaks to like these deeper senses. So we think, I think this is really narrow. I think now it's kind of an by Syria, people who study this, it's been abandoned, but this idea that we have only five senses. Um, oh, it's crazy. Yeah, and I think what you're pointing to there is, like there's this idea, for instance, that we have empaths, people in our culture or society, they're really good at reading other people's emotions or feelings. And, other, and most people just aren't. They're just not as able to do that. They misread people's emotions, they misread people's facial expressions, their body language. Um, and I've been thinking about when you said that, I, I think, I think that there's a whole set of senses that can be developed when you give a child the proper, um, environment to develop within. And if you're talking mm -hmm. about hunter gatherers, they, they're much closer to the natural world. They're basically, they don't see it necessarily see a differentiation between themselves and the world that they're a part of. And so I imagine that if you have that that view of things, that connection, that relationship with everything around you, then your senses are going to be far deeper, far more profound in your ability to read and sense things, things that maybe we have just absolutely no concept of in our modern mm -hmm. society. Uh, do you have any indication that that's the case in, in hunter-gatherer uh, contexts? Absolutely. Yes, right. Uh, anthropologists report that... Uh they could see the Jupiter's nine moons at the time, nine moons with the naked eye. Oh, my God. Or hear a single-engine plane 70 miles away or uh, all sorts of things like that. So um, I think that's true. I, you know, I've seen lists of uh, I think the maximum number was 33 senses that we have. Um, have you seen that? I haven't, so, that's I haven't interesting. seen it. <laughs> And I try to develop with my, my students their intuition and their awareness of because we work on nature connection in class. And so trying to uh, get them first to express in their body, you know, a particular emotion and then have someone, everyone's in a circle, and then have someone in the middle with their eyes closed or blindfolded folded, and then try to pick out who in the circle has the 
uh, is acting like a predator, for example. <clears throat> and some people yeah. are better at it than others. And you can, I can see that it's because of their, they come from a culture where they're much more holistic in how they live life than this very narrow way that um, European Americans tend to, to see life. You know, you just learn your, your school book work, take a test, get a good job. And then you have your family and all that, and that's what you do. Is you're all you're always in your intellect, which is a very narrow way of being a person. It's the conscious mind, right? That your conscious mind is making all these decisions and you know rational rationality, and that part of the brain is what the traditions around the world, the religious philosophical traditions, say is very dangerous because you think you know everything. That's that left hemisphere dominance. Maybe I mentioned this before when I talked to you, but uh, Ian McGilchrist wrote the book, The Master and His Emissary. And that, do you know that book? Um, I've, I've interviewed him, actually. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, so that's where the the master sends his emissary out to check on the, the country and everything, and the emissary starts to think he's in charge. And that's the way the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere interact then. He says that the left brain, the left hemisphere, has decided it's in charge and it's destroying the Western world, essentially. Right? And he goes through all this research. But the right hemisphere is us, right? That's our unconscious, all sorts of unconscious systems, our spirit, our empathy, our higher consciousness rooted there in that um, medley of, of subconscious kinds of capacities and that's the stuff we undermine when we don't provide the nest to children we're undermining the development there and that's where you can see big differences okay well i i think uh i think one of the things that comes up for me is i i become aware of what you're saying and and what you're pointing to in your research and i think um I guess there's a couple things that come up. One is this sense of uh, maybe a fear or rejection of trying to get in touch with those more sensitive parts of ourselves to work on developing our intuition or any of these other aspects. Because I think there's a feeling that we live in such a traumatized and traumatizing culture that to be more sensitive and to be more aware is actually going to bring about more pain right? If you're actually really sensing what other people are feeling right now, it is a lot of fear. It is a lot of anxiety. It, it is a lot of anger. Um, and it's interesting. It's like in trying to become, I just want to get your thoughts on this, but in trying to become a more healthy and empathetic person, um, I guess my personal fear is that I'm going to then feel more fully how absolutely um, just painful all of this really is. Do you know what I mean? It's like trying to become yeah. a fully realized human being in this time is not this like happy and, you know, we, I think we associate enlightenment or whatever that is with being, I'm, I'm centered, I'm grounded, I'm one with everything. And it's supposed to be this sort of blissful thing. But more and more, <laughs> I'm thinking maybe being a fully realized so-called enlightened human being is actually to live in constant, almost um, to constantly feel what other people are feeling, which is not necessarily good or happy or, or any of those things. Um, I, I, I don't know. It just sort of some thoughts that came up. I didn't know if you had any thoughts about that as well. Yeah. The, the, uh, I think this is where the ans 
long-standing meditation practices help. I mean, they've been around for thousands of years where you, um, and I encourage my students to do this, to not get caught up in the feelings you're feeling, but put them on boats, your consciousness, you know, this river of talk in your head and feelings. They're, just put each one on a boat. Uh, consider your um, consciousness a river, and you put each of these things that come up on a boat on the river, and then you say, hi, bye, and it floats by, right? And it, if you get caught on one thing, it sounds like maybe you need to journal about it, write it down, and then you can let it go. And I think that's what you do with people's feelings, too, around you not just your own and realize that you have a deeper self than that talking mind, that feeling mind, you're a deeper self. So this is where the mysticism comes in that you, your true self is eternal <laughs> and you don't have to worry really just in this world right now. The Hopi tell us we're in the what fourth world that we're destroying. Uh, kind of up the other ones. And I think that's again happening. Um, but that doesn't mean you're gone. You're just uh, re going to reorganize into some other life form, another, another, another life of some sort as this world tries to figure itself out. We're all, it's this idea of the common self. We're all together. We're all one. And there's just different manifestations of the hologramic universe, right? The mm. uh, implicate order, uh, the explicate order, what we see or what's manifest. That's David Baum, uh, physicist. Um, and and so you have to realize it's all coming and going anyway, right? It's all in flux. Everything's in flux. And so what you focus your attention on and what you pay attention to actually brings things into uh, form, into manifestation. So that's why you see that people are afraid, oh, you know, the... I guess I think like the Iraq war, oh, those guys are going to get us or whatever. And then you, they're, uh, the terrorists are over there. And then you bomb and, and destroy the country, and then you create all these terrorists. <laughs> yeah. So you, you're, you're, what your ideas that you have are really important to know what they are because you're creating that reality. And there's research that shows that when people, you know, they'll record somebody interviewing someone else, um, uh, and they'll tell the person that it's some minority group or some group they don't like. And the person asking the questions is much less sensitive and more judgmental. And you can tell other people who listen to the interviews will say, ah, didn't like them, that person. You know, there's a way that the way you talk to people actually creates how they respond to you, right? So if, you, mm -hmm. if you're suspicious towards them. So it really matters uh, how you behave. So this is where virtue comes in. Virtue and moral fitness is about being present in the moment <clears throat> fully open and in tune to the other, harmonizing with the other, with an awareness that you're all connected. And that are you uh, in these, um, Sorensen, maybe this is what I was going to say earlier, he pointed out that in these societies that he noted around the world who practiced the what I call the evolved nest and lived that way, they their whole orientation was to increase joy in the others around them. So they would do something that would make everyone laugh, we're happier. Somehow the whole society is about happiness and joy. Now, mm -hmm. if you're caught in your own, your own history, you're conditioned to be scared or worried or angry, you, it's hard for you to do that. You're going to 
spill out this negative energy, right? In a, to put it in those terms, <clears throat> because your 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 deeper self is now has been imprisoned. You have you've hardened your heart against your deeper self, and so therapy yes. is about unlocking that, cracking that that caught up heart, that heart that's imprisoned and releasing it and it takes some pain to do that it, it's hard but think of it as you know becoming a marine <laughs> you're gonna, you, know, you need some grit to get through it but on the other side you're going to be so free and you'll be much more attuned to life and you'll be more able to connect to others and you'll be able to perceive the oneness perceive that things are okay that's the sage-like um experience uh and so I think uh, you'll be able to be yourself, your true self, your uniqueness. Everyone's unique. Who do you want to be in this world? Someone else? No, you're the only one that can be you, right? So it's uh, keeping on to that promise that even if there is pain forward, uh, as you move towards kind of healing yourself, that you're going to be yourself more and find that treasure of who you are deep inside. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to um, point to what you discussed there with moral fitness. And if you could, I guess my final question for you is, you know, we are, as we mentioned throughout this uh, interview, we are in the midst of a very difficult thing, uh, this pandemic. And, And I think as you pointed to as well, this is, this is only one of maybe, I don't know how many, uh, unfolding crises that are that are manifesting right now like ecological crisis for instance the climate crisis and i think what is happening for me at least is that when we come to terms with this of of our own internal traumas and and how we maybe are inflicting and and acting towards others and how that stems from that we want to do that that inner work because it's really important right now that that we have as many fully realized uh, human beings that are working on healing as, as possible right now. You know, if there's ever been a time that we needed more human beings like that, it's right now, I would say. Um, so in discussing moral fitness, I, I'm curious about your thoughts on this and, and how that fits within the context of where we are right now, how being in the midst of a crisis, it could be a pandemic, it could be a war, it could be an economic uh, downturn, it could be whatever, whatever it may be. Um, you know, how can people approach... Um, how can people begin to act ethically and morally within those contexts? What kind of actions can people begin to take right now so that as the pressure builds in a, say on, on the, in our society, that we begin to make really well-informed um, moral decisions within those circumstances? Mm-hmm. Well, in my 2014 book, uh, The Neurobiology of Human Morality, I Evolution, Culture, and Wisdom, I talk about what to do, um, and we all have different aspects of ourselves that need to be healed. And so what I do with my students, too, is I have them practice self-calming techniques so that whatever that trauma you had that makes you anxious, you learn how to calm it down. So you have to pay attention to when you're feeling that way, when your jaw gets tight, when your you know breath gets shallow or whatever it is that you feel that your forehead gets you know you get a headache uh to pay attention and then use techniques like deep belly breathing and other things um to get yourself back centered 
And and then you always always want to have a sense of connection to others. So if that's something that was neglected, and those of us who have avoidant attachment have more problems with that because we're used to keeping people at arm's length. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what we learned to do in our families to sort of survive. Um, it was rewarded to not be emotionally intelligent. Uh, so you have to build your um, social joy. And the way I do that with my students is we play folk song games together. And when you and you can do this with just playing with a young child, play tag or chase, uh, rough and tumble, uh, wrestling, and that kind of thing keeps you in the moment. And that grows your right hemisphere and your capacities for social connection. And then that's not enough really to be fully human, but that's part of all, both of these things are part of it. The, the third part is to train your imagination uh, to uh, expand your imagination so it becomes more communal, to learn to empathize with people who are different than you. So go to movies or read books about people who are different so that you build a sense of, oh, they're part of me too. We're all in this together. We're all humans. They suffer similar things to my, that I have. Uh, and then part of that is also connecting to nature, that we are earth creatures, that we are here as we belong to the earth, the earth doesn't belong to us. Uh, we belong to the earth. If we lose air, sunshine, water, we're dead, right? We could live, as Jack Forbes says, we could lose my, I could lose my leg or my arm, my hand, my eye. But if I lose the air, the sun, <laughs> the water, I'm dead, right? <laughs> then I could live with different parts of my body being gone. So what is myself? Myself is part of the earth. And so to expand our imagination, to include our earth creatureliness and to treat the other than human as part of our community with respect as Native American traditions show with the honorable harvest, asking permission to take a life, uh, only taking part only uh, of a plant's community or something and always giving something back. I mean, this whole way of respecting being where we live, our landscape and every landscape's a little bit different, so you have to learn it, and it takes observation and, and such. So those are the things now I say we need to be ecocentric. We need to have organic morality that comes from the earth, from the nest, from uh, respecting and being humble to being uh, earth creatures, creatures of the earth. Uh, and our heritage has been to not be humble. But we need to return to that in order for us to survive as a species and st- uh, keep uh, other species alive. The planet will go along without us if our species disappears. But that's a loss, evolutionary loss, right? So to um, get back to that holistic fitness is, is to respect our earthliness and to respect our connection and to be calm, connected, and communal. Mm. Okay. I think that that's a great place for people to start, you know. Um, and everybody's on their own unique path and their own unique journey. And I think, mm-hmm. for me at least, um, when you really do uh, set your mind on something, like I really do want to get to the root of these things, um, you will begin to identify and see things that will lead you towards what you want, what you need. Um, and so people that really do want to address trauma and address their own pain, uh, I think that you will find the resources they will, they will emerge in some form or another. And I'm not saying that as some sort of, um, um, 
I don't know. I think sometimes that can be maybe seen as a, what is it called? The law of attraction or some kind of strange concept like that. I don't think the universe is necessarily going to realign itself just for you specifically, but I do think there is something to be said about what, when you are looking for something, when you really need something and you begin to identify what that need is, uh, things will emerge in your life to provide that for you if you so desire. So I think as more and more people are, maybe baffled and confused and uh, afraid of what's happening right now. I, I really hope that instead of it going in the opposite direction, which I see in many, many people, it actually leads towards healing. And uh, I, I hope that with your work out there and other people's incredible work that's been put out there, that, you know, the resources are there. The resources are there for people. And I think you've really contributed a great deal to that. So I, I really thank you, Darsha, for speaking with me. Uh, that was my final question. I didn't have anything else to add. Um, and I know you said, I don't know if you want to put this out in the public yet, but I know you said you'll be retiring from your position at uh, Notre Dame this year. Um, what are you going to be doing after that? I'll be working on the website we've started called the evolvednest.org and doing uh, books about the nest and indigenous ethics and things like that and doing maybe more podcasts, our own podcasts and perhaps webinars. We'll see. See where the universe leads me. Okay. And I thank you so much, Patrick. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Hey there. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about this podcast, visit lastborninthewilderness.com. Links in the description below. If you'd like to draw Patrick a line, there are two ways to do that. For those in the United States, you can call the phone number 208-918-2837 and leave a voicemail of up to three minutes in length. Second, you can drop an audio file by following the instructions through the link in the description of this episode. If you'd like to support this project monetarily, here are a few options. You can send a one-time donation to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast, and you can treat that a bit like a tip jar. And if you'd really like to sustain this work, consider supporting the project through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness and donate to the production of this podcast for $1 or more a month. And by doing that, you'll gain early access to these interviews and discussions before the official public release and also gain access to some exclusive content there as well. As a great psychedelic bard Terrence McKenna said, take it easy, dude, but take it. <laughs>